So this morning we are going to be looking at the book of Jonah. I would encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of the prophets found in the book of the Twelve, uh, one of the Twelve Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. I, I mentioned last week that there are four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then there are a group of twelve books written by different prophets in Israel. And all of their writings were put onto one scroll, and all of them together came to be known as the Book of the Twelve, the Book of the Twelve Prophets. And Jonah is a part of that section of the scriptures. Uh, But among all of the prophetic writings in the Bible, Jonah is unique in all of them. All of the other prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Nahum, Micah, Micah, Habakkuk, all of them, uh, they are books written, uh, prophecies written by prophets to Israel and sometimes to the nations. But the book of Jonah is a little bit different among the book of the prophets. The book of Jonah is not a story written by a prophet, prophecies by a prophet. Instead, it is a story written about a prophet and something that a prophet was called to do. So Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you remember, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom. And in fact, if you uh, have read 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah, this same Jonah, makes an appearance. And uh, he is a a prophet to King Jeroboam II. And we're told that God used Jonah to help advise King Jeroboam to reestablish some of the borders of Israel. And so we see in the the book of 2 Kings that Jonah had uh, more of a ministry than just uh, what we know of him in the the story of Nineveh and the whale. But in in the book of Jonah, God calls Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh was the capital city of a group of people called the Assyrians. And at this time in history, the Assyrians are the biggest military threat to the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians, during the time of Jonah, are beginning to become very powerful. They're beginning to conquer some of the surrounding nations. And the northern kingdom of Israel would have heard how ruthless and terrible and how violent the Assyrians were. And history tells us that the Assyrian kings and the Assyrian generals were known to be some of the most ruthless and cruel people in the history that history has known. When, is, when Assyria conquered a group of people, their military strategy was to strike fear into the hearts of the people that they conquered by ruthless acts of violence. And here God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, and to warn this wicked and ruthless people that God is going to destroy them. And so Jonah hears from God, and he hops up, and he goes to a boat, and he sails in the opposite direction. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And he takes off, and he goes to Tarshish. Nineveh is northeast. Jonah goes southwest. Jonah, go to Detroit. He books a ticket to the Los Angeles. Okay, that's, that's the idea here. And those who would have first heard the story would have heard uh, how, how funny it is that Jonah turned around and went the opposite direction from where God would called him to go. Most of you know this story. 
Jonah is on a huge, uh, is on a boat, and there's a huge storm, and Jonah immediately knows that the storm is his fault. He is a prophet. He is called by God to go and to speak, and he has clearly disobeyed God and brought disaster on himself and on this entire ship. And so he eventually, over the course of some conversations with the, the captain and the crew, convinces them to throw him overboard, and that's the only thing that's going to stop this storm. And sure enough, they throw Jonah overboard, and the sea becomes calm. And Jonah is swallowed up by a big fish. And as Jonah is in the fish for three days, while he's in that fish, Jonah has a bit of a conversion. He prays to God. He asks God for mercy and forgiveness. And the fish spits Jonah up onto dry land. And Jonah then does go to Nineveh. And he preaches the shortest and simplest sermon ever. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And the whole city repents and turns to God. And Nineveh is spared. Now for the most part, I think that this is usually where our story in Sunday school stops. Okay? Jonah is sent off to Nineveh. Nineveh repents and we kind of stop with the story there. But there's a whole other chapter in Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, there are a lot of great things that happen in those first three chapters, of course. We, we learn in those first three chapters that what God wants to happen happens in Jonah's life and in the life of Nineveh. We learn that God is able to use a reluctant man like Jonah, even when Jonah doesn't want to be used. We learn that God is in control of the sea and in control of storms and in control of a fish and in control of Jonah. We learn that God is the Lord over the heart of Jonah that he is the Lord over the hearts of the people of Nineveh, and then he can even use Jonah's very simple sermon to turn this city to God. There's some great things for us to learn in that story, but I want to focus our attention on the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. I think it's the part of the Jonah story that most of us are the most unfamiliar with, and I think it's also the part of the book of Jonah that really tells us what the book of Jonah is all about. And there are two things that we need to hear today from this story. First, we learn about God's heart and his purposes for the nations. And secondly, we learn about God's heart and his purposes for Jonah. We learn about God's heart and purposes for the nations, and we learn about God's heart and his purposes for Jonah. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4 for us this morning. Actually, begin in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, that is the people of Nineveh, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. 
And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Here at the end of chapter 4, we read about God's concern for the city of Nineveh. I love God's words to Jonah in these last few chapters, uh, verses of the book. We read about God's heart, about his love for these people that he created. He looks down from heaven and he sees this great city of Nineveh. And he sees that they are wicked beyond our imagining. And he, what he sees is a group of people who are lost, who do not know their right hand from their left. In the biblical story that we've been exploring over these last few months, one of the themes that continues to come up is God's plan and purpose for the nations. In the stories that we looked at of the fall, the very last story of the fall that we looked at was the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel finishes with God cursing the nations by confusing their languages and scattering them over the face of the earth. But one of the themes of the salvation story is how God is going to reconcile all nations to himself. And he does that in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, by choosing a man named Abraham among all the people of the earth. And he says to him that, Abraham, through you and your descendants, I am going to bless the nations. I'm going to reverse the curse that I placed on them in Genesis chapter 11 through you and your descendants. We see in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we begin to see when God sends his spirit that God is going to begin to heal this curse of division that the, that the nations have experienced. On the day of Pentecost, there are people gathered in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And there, God gives his spirit to his disciples, and the first thing they do is to begin to speak in languages that people from all of the nations can understand. The disunity that was caused by Babel is overcome through the power of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book of the Bible, we are told that in the city of God that there will be a great river, and next to that river will be the tree of life, and that river and the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. Part of the great work of God in salvation history is his great concern from people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God's mission is that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And so when there is a great city like Nineveh that has 120,000 people who are lost, who do not know their purpose, who do not know their right hand from their left, God is concerned God cares. 
He loves those people and he desires that they would fulfill their purpose of giving honor and glory to him in their lives. And so God's people, Abraham and Jonah and us as the church today, must always remember that we do not exist as God's people for our own sake. We exist for the sake of the world. The descendants of Abraham are blessed for the sake of the blessing to the nations. Jonah's ministry was for the sake of Nineveh, Broadway. We are not here for the sake of simply perpetuating our own existence as a church. We are here for the sake of the world. God loves Nineveh. God loves the people of Fort Wayne. God loves the mayor of Houston. God loves the confused and violent men of ISIS. He loves your coworker that you cannot stand. He knows and loves your neighbor across the street that you have never met. The book of Jonah is a reminder to us of God's heart and purposes for the nations and our calling to go and to be a part of making him known to the world, letting his love be known to the world. So in this story of Jonah, we read about God's plan and purposes for the nations. But we also read about God's purposes for Jonah. God's purposes for Jonah. In the story of Jonah, we read about a man who has all of his theology right. He is a prophet of God. A man that God has used in the past to speak to his people. Jonah is a man who knows the heart and the character of God but who was in his own heart, not oriented toward God's plans and purposes for the nations. God, Jonah loves God's people. Jonah loves Israel. He wants what is best for Israel, but Jonah does not have the same heart that God has for the nations. Why did Jonah run in the opposite direction? I think growing up, I always thought that it was because Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh. There are violent people. I don't want to go there. What might happen to me? But that's not Jonah's reason at all. Jonah was not afraid that something bad would happen to him. Jonah is afraid that something good is going to happen to Nineveh. Jonah, the first verses of chapter 4 tell us very clearly why Jonah ran in the opposite direction. Jonah... uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah hates the people of Nineveh. It's the capital of the Assyrians. It's one of the largest and most powerful cities of that day. They were a ruthless and violent people, and they were Israel's biggest threat. He hates the Assyrians. He knows that the city of Nineveh is an evil and wicked place, a place of idol worship, a place of injustice and immorality, and Jonah has no interest in being a part of any project that sees blessing come to them. And so he hops on the boat and goes in the other direction. 
Jonah hates the Assyrians, and he wants to see nothing good come for them. Jonah is a man who knows God. He talks to God throughout this entire book. He knows the name of God. He knows that God is Yahweh, I am. Throughout this book, Jonah addresses God in this very personal manner. He knows God's character. He knows that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. He is a man that knows the character of God. He has his theology right, but his own heart is not pointed in the same direction as God's for the nations. And so in the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh are not the only ones who need to repent. We learn that Jonah himself, a prophet of God, one of the spiritual leaders of Israel, that he too must repent. God has a lot to do, has a heart for Jonah and where Jonah is not enough for Jonah simply to remember and to know and to love God. God wants Jonah's heart to become like his heart towards the people that God created and loved. In chapter 3 and 4, we see that after 40 days of Jonah's preaching in the city of Nineveh, that nothing happens. That God spares the city, and so Jonah leaves the city, and he goes outside of the city, and he sits down, and he watches, hoping that God will change his mind. (laughs) Again, hoping that God will bring destruction on Nineveh. And while Jonah is sitting there waiting for something bad to happen to Nineveh, God keeps working on Jonah's heart. Jonah's out in the desert, and it's hot, And God sends this plant to come and give Jonah some shade while he is out there pouting in the desert. And Jonah sees this plant, and he loves it, and he's glad for it. But then God sends a worm to destroy the plant the next day. So Jonah is now exposed from the heat again, and Jonah becomes angry again. And in Jonah's anger, God comes to Jonah, and he has this amazing conversation with Jonah. He says, Jonah... You love this plant because of what it did for you. You didn't plant it or do anything at all to make it grow, but you loved it because it gave you shade and because it gave you protection. And now this plant is dead, and you're so angry about it that you're ready to die. But Jonah, don't you see? Don't you see how much more valuable these people are than this plant that gave you some shade. You didn't tend the plant, but you loved it because of what it did for you. You didn't do anything to bring the plant into being, but you loved it because of the protection that it provided for you. You put no work or effort into the plant, but you loved it because it benefited you. Well, Jonah, I created the people of this city in my own image. I lovingly created them. I made them. I know them by name. If you love this plant because of what it did for you, how can I not love these people who I lovingly made? Jonah, I love these people, and you should too. Jonah did not understand God's heart for the nations. He liked being a part of God's privileged people called Israel. Jonah liked being a part of the chosen people, but he did not understand that God chose Israel not only so that they could receive God's blessing, but so that they would be a light to the nations, be a bearer of God's blessing to the nations. And so Jonah needs to repent. 
He needs to ask that God would give him God's heart for the nations. We also see in this story that Jonah did not understand God's grace. He was a man who received a second chance, wasn't he? He was a man who heard the word of God to him, who blatantly disobeyed it, and did the opposite of what God called him to do. But in his own life, he experienced Yahweh, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Jonah experienced God's grace, but he was unwilling for the people of Nineveh to experience the same. Friends, the story of Jonah has a lot to say to us today. With some of the things that we are facing as Christians in America in 2014, the Bible is so relevant, always speaking into our situation if we're willing to hear it. At present, we stand as Christians in this country who know very well that there are men and women who are against us who are against God and his purposes for the world. We look around and we see on the news and anywhere else that we look that there are millions of people who do not know their right hand from their left. In other words, who are lost, who are confused, who are in spiritual darkness. Far away from us, but very close to our brothers and sisters in Christ, there is this group of people known as ISIS who are violent and ruthless and whose military strategy is to strike fear in the hearts of people and demand submission through violence. There is nothing new under the sun. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing a great and violent threat on their own lives. In the story of Jonah, we read about a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward Nineveh. How do we make sense of this? In our own grief for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, in our righteous anger about the insanity that is taking place in Iraq, how are we to respond? How can we be angry about what is happening there and still have the heart of God toward these people who do not know their right hand from their left? Paul says to us in the book of Ephesians, Be angry, And do not sin. So how do we do this? Think first, we must learn to trust that God is in control. Much of our anger, much of our fear comes from a desire to have control. And the truth is, we are in control of very little in our lives. And very little in our world. And we must trust that God is on his throne and that he is in control. Perhaps when we hear about what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted, maybe we wonder if maybe God is really doing such a good job up there. We need to trust that God is in control and he will bring about all things for his glory. And our calling as we stand here thousands of miles away in our time and here in our place is to trust in God's sovereignty that he is good And that in his time, he will bring a real and deep justice in a way that no human army ever could. With our deep sense of trust, we must be faithful in our time and place to do what God tells us to do in the face of our enemies. 
And one of the things that he tells us to do is to pray for them. I was asked recently why we pray for Muslims during church. And I can't think of any other reason except that Jesus asks us to do it. It's not my idea. In my flesh, I would not do it. But we're told to pray for our enemies and to even do good to those who hurt us. And so part of being faithful right now is praying for our enemies, to pray that God would bless them. Of course, not what they are doing, but that God would bless them by revealing himself to them, by convicting them of what they are doing, by showing them the truth and the light. They do not know their right hand from the left. They are confused and in darkness. And so we must pray. And we can only pray for our enemies. We can only pray for our enemies if we trust that God is in control. Because if we think we're in control, we've got to do something about it. We can only pray for our enemies if we know that God is in control. A second thing that we can do is to be faithful by supporting in prayer and in whatever way we can our brothers and sisters who are suffering right now. Next week is Persecuted Church Sunday. We're going to be remembering persecuted Christians throughout the world, and we're going to be taking an offering very specifically to go uh, to Open Doors, who has teams now. Vince read it for you um, earlier today. Teams in northern Iraq who are uh, doing counseling and providing basic physical needs for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering there. We have an opportunity to pray for them and to support them, those who are hurting right now. Closer to home, closer to home, Christians are experiencing other threats as well, aren't they? We've heard this past week of the pastors in Houston who have a mayor who is breathing threats against them because of their preaching. And this is just the latest in a series of threats against religious freedoms in our country. Uh, For hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Christians in America have enjoyed the protection and the privileges that have come from the policies of our government. Christians get tax breaks for money that they give to the church. That doesn't happen everywhere in the world. Churches are exempt from property taxes. That doesn't happen in most places in the world. Pastors get tax breaks on their housing simply for being a pastor and carrying out the work of the church. It doesn't happen in most places in the world. Christians have, for hundreds of years, enjoyed the protection and the shade and the comfort of living in this country. At the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah goes out to the desert and God makes a plant grow that gives him protection and shade and comfort. And then the next day, the plant withers and disappears and Jonah is left exposed and hot And he begins to suffer. Jonah becomes angry. He becomes so angry that all of his energy and attention and fury is directed at this plant that has died. And God says to him, Jonah, you are angry about the plant that has died, but the truth is there are thousands of men and women out there who do not know their right hand from their left, who are in spiritual darkness, and I have called you to be for them. Friends, we have for hundreds of years as Christians enjoyed the shade and the comfort and the protection of the policies of our government. 
And now it seems as if that plant is dying, at least in the protection that it's going to give to us as Christians. And so what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond? Well, first thing I say, let's tend the plant. It's not dead yet. Certainly the church in the United States, because of the freedom that we have, has done much good for the gospel throughout the world. The church has used that privilege to send out millions of missionaries throughout the world. We've done some excellent things as we've, as we've had these privileges to bless the world. But I want to ask us today, what if God allows our shade and our protection and our privilege to be taken away? Are we going to be angry that our rights have been taken away? That our comfort and our privilege has been taken away? Or are we going to be willing to suffer so that we can continue to do the work of God to bless the nations. When your tax breaks are taken away, will you continue to give to the work of this church and the work of missionaries overseas that we send? Or will you be angry about your privilege and your right that was taken away? I don't think there's anyone in this room who is unaware that the church is moving into a new day with new challenges. And it's my prayer that we as a church will always fight the right battles. That our time and our energy and our resources will be invested in the same battles that God is fighting and not in other battles. If God does allow sometime in the future our shade, our protection, our privilege to be taken away, I pray that our greatest attention will not be to hold on tightly to our rights but to prepare ourselves to suffer in the face of those who are against God and his church. I pray that always and in every circumstance, the church will be known first. The church will be known first, not as a people who demand our rights, but that the church will be known for being like Jesus, who did not demand his rights at all, but emptied himself, gave himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant, and died for who? His enemies. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the story of Jonah and for this challenging call This challenging call that you gave to Jonah and that you give to us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hurt us. And so God, right now we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, especially in Iraq right now, who are experiencing intense, fierce persecution. God, we pray. God, we pray for their strength, that they would not give in to the temptation of the evil one. And God, that they would stand strong in the power of your spirit. God, that as evil men do evil things against them, that they would express your love and your kindness to them. God, that they would be on their knees for their enemies and that we would be on our knees for their enemies and we would be on our knees for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing this great threat against their lives. And God, we pray for us in our own country. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom in these days. God, these days that are fraught with danger on either side. God, we pray that our country would continue to be a place that provides protection for, uh, for Christians and it gives us the ability, Lord, to do greater work than we'd be able to do without them. God, we pray that you would also give us strength and courage that we would not back down at the fear of losing those privileges. 
But Lord, that we would stand strong, continue to proclaim your name at the risk of losing them. God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who showed us in every way, in every way, how to live in this world and how to approach and stand against and for his enemies. God, we pray that we would follow his example in every way. We can only do this by the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, fill us with your Spirit and make us your body. Amen.